good show. Let's get after here. So tonight we're going to talk about the guidelines to developing skills. Okay, this is critical stuff, especially when you're training to develop skills and hopefully turn them into talent. And I'm going to go through some guidelines for you that, you know, comes down from the highest level of training at the Olympic level. And I've had time to spend you know, some really good time with some top athletes around the world and sports teams, and I'm going to share what, uh, what these guys are doing and, and kind of why the way that they think about going things. So in this broadcast, I'm going to share with you the guidelines the top athletes in the world follow to develop their skills and in turn allows them to grow their talent from these skills in becoming world-class performers. How about that, right? I mean, if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what does because it's all about training, right? If you've never met me before, I'm Sean Humphreys. I'm a high performance coach and I specialize in raising performance of individuals or changing performance. Whether you're a highly skilled athlete or you're on your way to becoming one or you just want to improve your performance, you're in the right place, all right? So if you can, if you're joining in, um, give me a little thumbs up. Also, I'd, I'd like to know where you're joining in from. It helps me realize or understand who we're reaching around the United States or even around the world, which is pretty cool. Uh, also, hey, knock out the questions and also know that this is going to be a rebroadcast on our YouTube channel as well. And as you ask questions, I love to go in and retrieve those questions and see what your comments are so that I can communicate with you. It's pretty cool stuff. All right, so let's dive in. So as an elite performer, okay, the elite seem to have an uncommon persistence that really defies explanation, okay? When the going gets tough, the tough get going, you know, may be trite, but, it, but it's true, right? And I believe that adversity creates a special form of motivation in people, okay? I truly believe if I hadn't been an average golfer, I would not be the coach I am today. And when I say average, that means average among the professional piece of where I, I, I attempted to play. I was so frustrated with the up and down performances as a professional golfer, I had, I had driven motivation to succeed as a coach. Like most coaches in the world, you know, there has never been a an excellent athlete in a sport that was an excellent coach or a great athlete became a great coach. It just doesn't happen. And there's never been a great coach that was a, a great athlete, vice versa, right? Most of your coaches are were, were decent players, okay, but they understood the game and it helped them become an extraordinary coach. And that's really been kind of my goal. And my goal is to give you know, my athletes the greatest opportunity to win. And perhaps this explains in part why I'm so driven to be the best at training. Because again, my goal is to, to give the athletes, the coaches, and the people I work with the greatest opportunity to win. Uh, my dear friend, um, Coach Parcells, told me that, you know, years ago, you know, 20-something years ago, he said, look, Humphreys, he goes, you owe it to the athletes to give them the opportunity to win. And one thing that I have found, training produces skills, okay? And that's a fact. So 
Skills, skills are developed in the subconscious mind. We know that. And the amount of skill in the size of the subconscious that you grow are determined by basically three keys, okay? And so when I, when I say size of the, the, the subconscious skill, it actually is. It's a certain size within here and within using your body to produce a skill. Basically, how skilled you become is determined by these three keys that we're going to talk about. The first one is the quality of training, all right? And that is, you know, function both of the knowledge and actually the knowledge skill set as well as the physical skill set. Most people are, are tilted so much towards the skill set that they don't even work on the knowledge piece. So the quality of training is critical, and we'll dive into that. The second one is the quantity of training, the amount of training that you do. How often do you do it? How long do you do it? How many reps do you get in? How many reps should you get in? What does that preparation look like? What does preparation look like for competition? So the quantity of training is critical as well in growing your skills into talent. And then the third is the efficiency of the training, and we're going to dive into that. So when we look at the quality, okay, quality of training is a function of both the value of the knowledge you're exposed to. The knowledge is, I can't, ex I can't express the knowledge piece enough, and I don't see that being done enough today. So there's too much tilt towards the technique side, the hitting the golf shot side, and not just the whole knowledge piece. And so think about this from an academia piece of understanding the knowledge of, one, the quality of training that you need, the quantity of training that you need, and the efficiency of it, and the knowledge that needs to go into understanding what all three of these keys are. And I think if we have that approach, we're going to have an, a better opportunity to understand how I go about my training and be able to manage it. So, you know, again, you know, the, the, the quality is the function of both the value of the knowledge you're exposed to and the efficacy of the instructors that present it to you. All right? So, is the information you are presented with the best available? Is, is the information you are presented, is it, is, it from the, is it the best information available? That's the first thing that you got to ask. And it might be. It might be the best information that is currently available to you. And I encourage everyone to vet out where they're getting their information from and how they've gotten it and, you know, what... Um, laboratories they had to test it in. Like for me, you know, when I was building the system EPS, I had the laboratory. I had an academy that had 150 kids in it, and I vetted and I tested this program for 17 years over and over again in building a system. That's how you build a system is that you have to have a laboratory. Also, is, is the information, is it up to date? Is it well presented? Um, the next thing is, are you learning from books? Are you learning from videos? Uh, are you online? Uh, or is it personalized, face-to-face, in-person instruction? 
Um, the next is, is in, from a quality standpoint, how skilled are the instructors or authors at presenting the information? How skilled are they? Um, you know, there can be some really good information and it's just presented just horribly. Um, or it could be the information is just decent, but it's presented excellent. Uh, I think the presenting piece of the information is critical. And I've really always tried to, to better myself on presenting information all the time, especially in this world of having a, you know, a, a YouTube channel as well as being on Facebook. And, and having you as an audience, I think it's important. These are the, are the factors that affect the quality of your training. Okay, all these things that we're talking about, you know, the, who's presenting it, is it the author, is it a video, is it online, is it personalized instruction, how skilled are the authors uh, presenting the information? They're, they're key factors that affect, you know, the quality of your, of your training, and the higher the quality, the better the training, right? You want high quality information that's going to set up the excess for the quality of your, of your training, okay? So I'd, I, I believe that is a huge, uh, huge key. Uh, the next is, is the quantity, okay? And the quantity is the amount of time you actually spend in learning and growing, okay? And, you know, it's not always directly related to the amount of time spent in the activity. I mean, it's really not. Um, you could spend a very short period of time in an activity and the quantity and the quality that you get out of it can be incredible. You know, for example, you know, like when, when I train, which I don't do a lot of training anymore, but when I train, you know, when I go out to hit balls or work on certain aspects of my game, let's say if I'm gonna hit balls on full shots, I hit no more than 25 balls. And it takes me a long time to do that because I'm running all six steps of performing, right? And it takes a long, I'm, I'm approaching every shot just like it's in competition. So uh, 25 balls, man, I can get a great workout in. So it's not always directly related to the amount of time spent in the activity. It's possible to be at a training session and do many other things than learn and grow. And I see that a lot happening today. And because a lot of training is randomly and aimlessly done. It's not defined. It's not measured. It's not timed. And when this happens, it's not always a function of how many attempts that you make Half-hearted attempts are ineffective and dilute the training process. And I see this all the time. A guy or even a girl walks out on the putting green, they got three balls and they just drop them around and they're just slapping them around. And I see that probably 95% of the time. And so you got to ask yourself that if this is the way that I'm going about my training, well, that's the way that I perform as well. I can't expect anything different from my training if that's the way that I go about it. So, you know, it's the amount of time that you put in has to be very defined, measured, and timed. And if you're a high school student, you don't have that much time. If you're a college player, you don't have that much time. 
and you have to learn to manage your time extremely wisely to manage the quantity of it. The, the efficiency piece is, is that we're going to talk about here is directly related to how balanced a player becomes in training of all three mindset processes, like running, our three, running the three-step mindset program. Um, at the same time in their training session. And athletes should be working on this piece, this mindset piece, all the time. And, and they should be doing that in conjunction with running all five steps of performing. And if you've watched some of our broadcasts, we talk about this uh, quite a bit. If a player is, here's something interesting when you talk about the efficiency. If a player is thinking about things that maximize, perf maximize performance, the conscious mind is built. If they're thinking about things that maximize performance, the conscious mind's going to grow. If he's utilizing proper techniques, then the subconscious will grow. And that's the subconscious is basically your skill, right? Your conscious mind are your thoughts, and that's how you see things and how you perceive things. And if your techniques are proper and that's going to grow your subconscious mind and it's enhanced. And this, this goes for, you know, the same in your actual training, right? If you're training for competition and you also can do this uh, in competition as well. So your efficiency around this piece is, is critical. If, if, he, if he or she is picturing what he wants to have happen and carefully avoids negative imprints, the self-image will grow. So... To kind of, you know, if you've just caught us, you know, on this, um, the show and you, the self-image is a critical piece in changing performance. It's the self-image is the sum of your habits and your attitudes. It's your area of comfort that you like to operate in. And everybody has that. And it moves us to be who we are. And if we get in a situation where we're not comfortable, it, we revert back to that. Simplest way to put it is, is that if, if you have a 75 shooter and they're three under par coming down the stretch and it's not like them to shoot under par, they're going to figure out how to shoot 75. The self-image is like a throttle on a motorcycle, right? If it's like you to do it, it puts on the gas and it shoots you through it. If it's not like you to do it, it shuts it off. You shoot under par on the front, it's not like you to be under par on the front, so you shoot four or five over on the back. You have four or five birdies in a row, but it's not likely to do that. You have bogeys. That's what is called self-image correction. So in, it, in the efficiency, if again, if he or she is picturing what he wants to have happen and carefully avoids negative imprints, the self-image grows as well, right? So when all three of these things happen simultaneously, the training is very efficient, okay? If, however, the player's conscious thoughts are not those that maximize a good performance, okay? If players, the conscious thoughts are those that don't maximize a good performance or he or she beats himself up after a bad shot, the training becomes less efficient, okay? E even if proper technique is used. So this is what I see all the time is that they're working on technique, they're working on technique, and they're beating themselves up because the shots were bad. 
and they continue to work on technique and continue to work on technique. So they're working on everything below the neck and not working on everything up here. Okay. You can have the proper technique and you can still be beating yourself up. It doesn't work. Okay. And so if any of the mindset processes are ignored or performed poorly, the efficiency of training session, it has a negative effect, it has a complete negative effect on your conscious mind, your subconscious, and your self-image. And it really just shrinks the self-image. So the imprints of what you're doing in training are critical for your self-image, okay? And I see this a lot with negative talk, beating yourself up. It's, uh, it's something that we have to keep an eye on as athletes and parents and coaches, and more importantly, athletes. So let's dive into, some, into these guidelines, right? Okay, so in, in training, guideline number one, okay? You want to catch yourself doing something right. And you've probably never heard that before. All too often I hear the comment, what am I doing wrong? Okay? If I could only isolate my problem areas and find the cause of my failures, that's what I hear. I could be, I could, I could be a success. If I could find out all the reasons why I'm, I'm wrong and all the things that I'm doing wrong, once I know all that, I'll have success. Let me tell you, there's nothing further from the truth than that. That's like saying, if you study all the wrong ways of building a house, you will learn how to do it right. That's a big crock of BS, okay? What you really need to do is study one or two ways of doing something right instead of a hundred ways of doing it wrong. And I hear that. People that are in that negative piece, it's like, what did I do wrong? I can't do this. This isn't working. I'm not going to be able to do this. I got to figure out what I'm doing wrong. And then next thing you know, if you study failure, okay, you will be, a, be an expert at how to fail. Do you want to be an expert of how to fail or how to have success? So you need to study success. You need to study solutions so that you can become an expert at solutions and having success. So stop catching yourself doing things wrong and trying to find out and, and trying to find out why you're failing. It's the worst thing you can do. Okay? Focus on success alone. Build your self-image. Because your training needs to be a solutions-based training, not a problem-based training. Okay? Guideline number one. Okay? Also, in guideline number one, here's an example that, that kind of that will resonate with you. A golfer hits a good shot and says, well, I guess I got lucky that time, right? Okay. When he hits a bad shot, he says, why do I always do that? His self-image shrinks every time he repeats this kind of behavior. Oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? I can't do anything right. I hit it bad every time on this hole. I play this hole like crap. Okay. A better solution, you know, a better solution would be to say, what solutions do I need, right? So as opposed to saying, why do I always do that? The self-image always shrinks. And you might want to say, hey, the better solution is to say, hey, what do I need to do to make that a good shot? 
if it's a miss hit or it's a good shot, you know, what did I do right? What did I do right if it's a good one? I mean, so this is a whole different topic, but I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute, is that most athletes don't know what they're doing when they do something well. Because the emphasis is so much, so much focus on what you're doing wrong, okay? So I hope you can see that difference. I mean, this may sound, it may sound so basic, and it does sound basic in common sense to you, but many times we see accomplished veterans in sports making these mistakes daily, beating themselves up, talking negative. Uh, any, here's a rule. You don't ever talk about what you don't want. Pretty simple. You know, if I if I'm if I if I want to eliminate, you know, three putts from my game, I've got to get better at distance putting, right? I don't say I'm working on eliminating three putts. I'm working on my distance putting that's going to reduce my score. I won't talk about what I don't want, right? So let's talk about guideline number two. Okay. So in guideline two, you want to train for four or five days a week, okay? Uh, that's kind of the, the, the recipe that we found at the ultra-elite level. The information in this guideline is applicable to only performers that are developing skills, okay? So that you're developing your skills, you need to train four or five days a week that are really trying to develop your skills. It's not uncommon for performers that have that are highly skilled to train little or none at all and do well in competition. We see that on the tour. We see that with professional sports. The best athletes in the world had to go through this development period that we're talking about, and that's the majority of the audience that we're talking about right now, is we have to develop our skills, right? But once you get in one of this mode of the best athletes in the world, you know, they've gone through the, this period in what we call that period of training to learn, right? Few train the same day as when, or, the, or few train as much when, they're, when they have acquired skills. They're training on developing the talent, okay? You cannot become skilled if you do not train regularly. That is a fact. If you don't train regularly, you are not going to have a chance to develop your skills, okay? So the question to the answer is, how much do I train? Do I, how, much, how much is too much? How much is not enough, right? So I want to break this down for you. So most segments during a developmental period or training to learn, so there's four stages of the athlete, right? Training to learn, training to compete, training to win, training to advance. The advanced stage is like world championships, winning gold medals. So that's probably not in the equation. So there's three that we're talking about here. So if you don't manage this, okay, you will burn out if you do, if you train seven days a week, okay? You're going to completely burn out. If you train less than four days a week, you will not maximize your development. Seven days is too much. If you train less than four days, you're not going to maximize the development of your skills. Here's something interesting. 
if you train only one day a week, it's, it's probable that you will deteriorate faster than if you didn't train at all one day a week. I mean, that, that's a fact. So that's right. One day a week is worse than no training at all. If you train two to three days a week, you can maintain your level, okay? If you train two to three days a week, you can maintain your level, but you're not going to improve, okay? So that's why it's, you know, probably a minimum of four up to six, right? So training for, for six days a week is optimal to move up the mastery curve. So if you're training six days a week, you're going to have a chance to move up the mastery curve. You know, when, when we train our athletes, we train, we train them six days a week with a mandatory day off. You have to take a day off. You may not be able to sustain this heavy, heavy training during competition or during uh, competition-driven periods to maximize this guideline in the off-season if you can. So what, what, what happens is, is that when you move into a heavy competition uh, season, you're going to have to learn to manage your training. Why? So that you don't overtrain and then overtry in competition. That is the kiss of death. We talk about it all the time. And you have to be able to monitor that. Because golf can be a year-round sport, but you will benefit greatly in scheduling periods in, of intense training, okay? So when we talk about periods of training, I did a lecture um, on, on planning your year of competition and what the months look like and how they're broken down from the training aspect, the planning aspect, and taking time off. So if you'll go to that, that, that that's on the YouTube channel, and the title of it is Planning Your Year of Competition, okay? All right, so now let's move into um, the, third, the third training level. So we talked about the days. We know that one day a week is the worst than none, so you're better off not training at all. We know that you know, two to three days a week, you're not going to move up the mastery curve. You've got you to be, be at five or six days a week in your training, okay? Um, What's the time frame on that? Well, what I found is, is that, you know, there's got to be a minimum of three hours of training, okay, to move up that mastery curve. And when you don't have a lot of obstacles in place to where you have time, you know, five hours is ideal. At the college level, they're only allowed four. That's enough time. They, they, they can train six days a week. At the college level, they have five days of organized practices. They have two days off, but typically the athletes are training on, the, on their own one day, and then they have a day off, okay? All right, so let's talk about the training guideline number three, okay? So this one is about rehearse, rehearsal, and rehearsing, okay? You want to rehearse the competition day as often as as you can within a training session. In other words, your training must have higher consequences than the competition and it must replicate what a competition must look like. 
That's how you build tolerance. It's how you build capacity. But more importantly, it's how you grow your self-image so it becomes like you to do something that you're not doing. If you're an athlete that, you know, in training you do okay, and when you get in competition it plummets, it's because your training doesn't have high enough consequences that set you up for high consequences in competition. And I think that we can all agree that competition has the highest consequences, right? So we have to treat training days if they had the same importance as the most critical competition days. At some point in every day of your training, you need to put in high stakes situation training. It's what we call training for competition. It follows the Olympic training model that has intensity. It makes you nervous. There's pressure there. There's tension. There's anxiety. And your focus must be there, especially with the mindset, running the mindset system. Okay. Okay. You also need to rehearse the actual competition in your mind. And if you're getting ready to go into competition that week and you know the golf course and you've rehearsed it, you need to rehearse that competition in your training. And what we call preloading the event, that means that you're rehearsing every single shot before the event. And that's usually done, you know, I don't think you can do it enough. And I've got our college teams that we're working with, they'll start weeks in advance of what we call preloading the golf course. And they're re they, they bring it up on whether it's Google um, Earth Pro or Pro Visualizer or Blue Golf or whatever the app is, and they map the entire golf course from start to finish, and they start laying it out, and they're rehearsing this over and over again. Um, it's like going to war, folks. You got to look at the terrain. You got to look at how you manage it. I mean, our athletes that we're doing this with, I asked them, I said, can you imagine now that the only preparation that you had in the past was playing one pre-tournament round? I don't call them practice rounds because you're not practicing. You're prepping for the tournament. One pre-tournament round. And you're trying to get all your knowledge and everything before you play. Heck, a lot of youth, youth players don't even play pre-tournament rounds. They don't even play a practice round before the event, and you're gonna show up and play the golf course. You've done all this training and working your butt off to get there, and you're gonna go play in this event, and you don't even know where you're going. If you really wanna destroy your self-image, folks, just do that. You'll absolutely destroy it, because you could be hitting it great and go out and shoot a million. So parents and coaches and athletes, you've gotta understand is that the preparation starts weeks in advance before an event. And we use the techniques to do it. And I want to tell you the story before we close is, you know, when I had the, I the opportunity to work with a lot of college teams around the country. And one particular team that I've been working with for a few seasons now is Bradley University up in uh, Peoria, Illinois. A couple years ago when we started working with them was in October. And in that November, they had the worst winter in the history of the state. And Bradley doesn't have a lot of outdoor facilities to use. They have an indoor training facility where they can hit some, hit some putt shots up to probably 25, 30 feet. They can hit some chip shots. But it, when, when it comes to getting outside, they can't get outside to hit any balls. 
but they have a baseball diamond that they go to basically one day a week to hit up to 125-yard shots. That's all they had to work with. That's all I had to work with as a consultant saying, okay, how am I going to prepare you for competition? So that was started in October. Their first event was in February, okay? And so I started using these protocols that are brought down from the Olympic level to teach the athletes how to prepare before competition while they're not even being, while they can't get out and train. And one of them is, is preloading the golf course and we laid it out. They were going down to Houston to play in a tournament in February. They started preparing, you know, basically a couple months out. And I happened to be in Houston at that time to be able to meet the team down there. And we were walking the, uh, the pre-tournament round and it's pouring down rain. They don't care. They're on grass. They haven't even been on grass yet to play. And all these other teams have. And some of the players turned to us and said, hey, coach, man, these fairways are so much wider than we preloaded in the uh, coming down here. And I'm like, man, bombs away. These guys go out the first day and they shoot 10 under, set a new school record, shot 10 under par for 36 holes, and they're leading the event. Had personal best across the board, they had five personal best on both sides of the table of the rounds. It was incredible. They went on to, they went on to finish runner-up. They played good the second day, but uh, the team that won, Abilene Christian, uh, one of the teams that uh, players we work with, um, they ended up winning. So when they go back home in February, where are they going back home to? They're going back to Frozen Tundra, man. They're back in the same thing again. They've got to work on their indoor piece of putting, hitting chips. They get to hit wedge shots up to 125 yards. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, we got to start preloading for the next event again. And they hadn't been on grass, and they go to the next event. Same thing. They played excellent. They end up winning that tournament, okay? They ended up winning three times that year, okay? Their goal was to win the conference championship. Now, mind you, they started preloading the conference championship, the second event into the season, and the conference championships are basically in May, right? And they rehearsed this golf course hundreds of times before they even played the pre-tournament round. They go to the pre-tournament round. I think they got to play three rounds. So now they're just reinforcing everything that they'd been imprinting for all of these months. They went out and they set a new Missouri Valley Conference record. They set a new school record, and they won the conference championship by 20 shots, and it was the first conference championship in the history of the school. They played less golf than anybody. They played, they'd been on less turf than anyone. They'd hit less balls than anyone, played fewer rounds than anyone, and they dusted the field by using these techniques. It's a remarkable story, and they've, re they've, they've changed their recruiting habits, and they're now going to become a powerhouse in collegiate golf by doing this. And these techniques can help and change your game. And I, and I just wanted to share that with you because it gives people hope that are up north. And if you're watching this tonight and you're up north, I hope you've taken, um, taken some notes from this. And I hope you've enjoyed this broadcast as much as I've enjoyed putting it together for you. You can join me Wednesday Every, just about every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, and 
hey, if you know somebody that could use this information, pass it along, give them a like, share it with them, because we want to help as much people as we possibly can. If you're interested in being a part of our onboarding program, you may see some of our ads on Facebook right now. We've opened our private client group back up for collegiate onboarding athletes. I'm having uh, calls every day with parents and discussing about what it looks like and the training. We've got one of the most powerful onboarding programs. Actually, we have the only college onboarding program in the United States. And, we're, and the athletes are accomplishing their goals every single week. If you don't believe me, check out our Facebook page just this past week. Look at all these college teams that are absolutely tearing it up in NCAA sports. It's amazing. Also, we have training camps that I do at our facilities here in Palm Beach. And they're weekend camps. It's a great way to get a kickstart in EPS and then, and then do a great follow-up with uh, in the onboarding program. If you, have, if you have any questions at all, feel free to shoot me an email. You can message me. Hit me a note here. My email address is sean at seanhumphreys.com. If you'd like to talk online, here's my direct line. It's 972-793-7255. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in and watching these and sharing these. Uh, we're growing this community. And we're, gonna, we're, we're getting people to learn, to think, train, and reinforce and train, change their performance and accomplish their goals. This has been a blast. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.